scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Wow. <laughs> Whoa, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus used and reserved his most harsh words for the scribes and Pharisees, those unbelieving leaders of Israel. And how did they fill up the measure of their fathers, they killed Jesus. So if we have to deal with scribes and Pharisees, how do we maintain courage? <laughs> they might kill us, right? All right. We don't really have scribes and Pharisees like there were when Jesus and Paul lived on this earth, but we do have self-righteous religious people who pretend they have it all together when in reality they are murderers, murderers in their hearts. And of course, they're the Muslim extremists and some Hindus who will kill rather than abandon their false gods. They're Buddhists who end the lives of others for their own good. There's spiritists, there's Wiccans, there's Gaius, there's evolutionists that are off band. There are all those weird people. But sadly, there are also those like the scribes and Pharisees of old who claim to serve the true God, but are hypocrites. There are Roman Catholics who will kill Protestants and sometimes the other way around as well. There are also people who teach liberation theology, that it's okay to attack and even kill the rich if it gives power to the oppressed. That's actually taught as a Christian belief. They do it all in the name of Christ. But most of us meet hypocrisy in its much milder form. <laughs> Weak need hypocrisy. People who don't have the courage to directly attack us, instead they make snide little comments about us. They call us fools and idiots. How can he believe such primitive thoughts? Like they're thinking something new? <laughs> they usually won't say that to your face, of course. I haven't got any courage themselves. I mean, wouldn't you like a straightforward fight sometimes? Now, don't get me wrong, it's not like I'm trying to meet a hypocrite who wants to kill me. <laughs> but we do have to be aware that just because we don't see the violent behavior that Jesus and Paul did doesn't mean we don't have people with the same spirit around us. It's not as obvious as it was with those men, but it's just as real. And the courage we'll need is just as real as that Paul needed to face his accusers. After his arrest, there are three times that Paul defends himself before the Jewish leaders. 
Interestingly, they are each formal hearings in front of Roman officials. We'll save the reactions of the Romans for another sermon. For today, let's limit ourselves to how Paul interacted with the hypocrites, the very men who were trying to kill him. Perhaps we'll pick up a few tips on how to interact with this sort of people in the world and hopefully learn how to have the courage to do it. I'd like to go backwards in these as it will show us the conflict first, boil down to the essentials, then the details of the conflict, and finally, the root of the conflict. Well, also, very important, very important, see how Paul gathered and maintained courage through these trials. So let's go beyond Paul's arrest, initial arrest, two years, to see what's happening, the essentials of the conflict. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, if Luke knew that they were, there were men waiting to kill him, then Paul must have known also. And they were serious. Before Festus arrived, there was no Roman ruler in the area. And these very men, these very same men, had taken the opportunity to kill James, the brother of Jesus. How did Paul maintain courage knowing all this? Festus is the new Roman ruler for the entire Syrian area. He spends only three days in the Syrian capital before he makes his way to Jerusalem. He knew where the trouble was likely to emerge. He doesn't fall into their plan and tells them to come to a formal hearing at Caesarea where he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. They could not prove the charges, but they still vigorously proclaimed them. <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed this as well. Truth isn't the issue to these people. Winning is. And how would they define winning? Getting their way and destroying their enemies. Paul, in this case, us, in our case. And what does Paul do? Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Sometimes our job is simply to state the truth, <laughs> deny the false accusations, the false statements that they have made. But we must actually do this. Uh, don't let people get away with saying false things about you or other Christians. Speak the truth. Let's look at the details of the conflict. And as to Paul, what were these serious charges? Uh, we learned the details of Paul's case from the trial that happened two years before that. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy must peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. This professional's accusation of Paul begins with blatant flattery of the governor Felix. From history, we also know that it's blatant lying. <laughs> During Felix's reign, violence and unrest in Palestine was at an all-time high. Uh, and foresight, he was universally seen as a short-sighted, self-serving bureaucrat. 
Uh, most excellent was a title normally reserved for the equestrian class, it was called. Felix was a freed slave, and he could not even belong to the equestrian class. If it wasn't for his brother, who was at that time well-loved by the emperor, Felix wouldn't have a position at all. But the lawyer knew what he was doing. <laughs> Flattery was and is a very successful maneuver with this sort of ruler. And hypocrites have no problem doing whatever it takes to gain their advantage. Let's compare and contrast Paul's opening statement. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. <laughs> Paul sticks to the truth. But note what he does not say. He does not point out this man's many faults. Sometimes people do need to have their sins pointed out to them, but usually they don't. Either they already know full well how far short they fall from the glory of God, or, or they are so convinced that they are right that nothing you're going to say is going to get through to them anyway, so it's no point. To say it another way, if the Holy Spirit is convicting them, they'll hear you. If not, they won't, no matter what we say. Well, now let's look at the actual serious charges and see how Paul responds in each case. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Each of the charges that Tertullius makes is designed to get a response from Felix, the Roman governor. Have you noticed that when people say evil things about Christians, it's never really about what it's about. <laughs> it's always couched in terms that will sell it to their audience. The truth is that Paul never once incited a riot. Riots happened lots of places he went, but it was always others who did not like his message who started them, particularly unbelieving Jews. Hypocrites, like many sinners, don't really care what the cause of the problem is. They just don't want the problem. I mean, they don't really want a solution either. They just want the problem to go away. So when one of us, in this case Paul, points out their sin, they're none too happy. They don't want to change who they are, certainly not admit any guilt on their part. They want all the benefits of God's creation, but without any responsibility to him. And they're not happy when we point out that it doesn't work that way. But Paul doesn't get upset about the lawyer's grandiose claims of insurrection everywhere, a charge which Rome took very seriously. He just deals with the issue at hand. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Hey, he says, how can I gain enough influence to cause a riot in only 12 days? Check it out yourself. I did not do what they say I did. And note, Felix, that there is no evidence to support their claims. That last one's an important one for us. Do we know the facts of Christianity well enough that we can dispute with those who make false claims about it? We are commanded by Scripture to defend the faith, so we better make sure we know enough to do it. Tertullius went on to say, And Paul is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Notice how they use words to twist meanings. Ringleader? Why not just leader? And a sect, now sect may not have had a bad connotation then like it does now, 
But if Christianity was found to be a new religion, then it would not have any status, that is, legal protection under the laws of Rome. Very important. It's a sneaky guy. (laughs) Sect of the Nazarenes. Everybody knew that Nazareth was a dirty little town with a significant proportion of undesirable people. In other words, guilt by association. Very common tactic. There are a significant number of people trying to rewrite history by saying that Christians supported the Nazis and helped to bring them to power. Silly, unsubstantiated claims like this crop up all the time. And don't let them get away with it. Not all that long ago, one of our own that comes to this church was told that it was Christians who are the cause of the Pledge of Allegiance no longer being recited in schools. What? (laughs) What do you do with something like this? Well, how did Paul handle the lie, they told him. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He doesn't directly attack the guilt by association cheap shot. (laughs) Instead, he gives the real definition. The gospel is the thing. Focus on the message, the good news, and forget the unimportant stuff, like Paul's position as a leader in the church. Not only does he ignore the slanderous way this hired gun referred to him, he doesn't even address his position at all. He just worships God. That's all that's important. He also handles the legal issue by going back to the truth. Christianity, the way, is the true purpose of the Judeo belief and thus the legitimate heir of, of the Jewish religion, the legal heir of the Jewish religion. All believers in God under the law and the prophets will become believers in Jesus Christ. But by the way, there is a little bit of a stab here. The Sadducees did not believe that anything beyond Moses was scripture. First five books, that's it. They didn't believe the writings of the prophets were given by God. The Pharisees, and pretty much every other Jew, violently disagreed with them. The Pharisees also accepted the resurrection, in principle. We'll get to that in a moment. But note that Paul brings the resurrection into the argument. Why? There's no legal advantage for him to discuss the resurrection. So why did he do it? Because that's a central message of the gospel. Paul's main concern is not whether he is found guilty or not. It is that the message of the gospel is proclaimed even to a lowlife like Felix. (laughs) It's not our job to decide who believes and who does not. Our job is to give the message. God will take care of the rest. Oh, and Paul took pains to make sure he had a clear conscience toward both God and man. So let's do the same. You could ask yourself this. If I was talking to someone about why they should change their entire life and follow Jesus... What might they bring up in my life as a problem? Not past issues, but right now. In other words, what's the yabbat? You know what a yabbat is? Yabbat, then why do you do yabbat? Then why don't you? Yabbat, I've seen... Yeah, so let's avoid any new yabbats. we got enough in the past. We don't need to add any. (laughs) We need to ask God to help us see what it is in our lives that stands in contrast to what a Christ follower should be. Because our sins, if we keep doing them, will block others from accepting the message of the resurrection from us. 
It's serious. But let's drop back a couple thousand years again where we get to Tertullius' sneakiest, slipperiest charge of all. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. This guy is good and very, very devious. Now, don't forget the goal these men have, to kill Paul. You remember a few weeks ago that we discovered the Romans had given the Jews authority to manage their own temple grounds, even to the point of executing a Gentile who profaned the temple by entering its inner courts, even if that person was a Roman citizen. One time they even let him kill a soldier who did it. If this charge stands up, then Felix will be forced to follow precedent and turn Paul over to these Jews. They would certainly not have waited to reach Jerusalem before they ended Paul's life. Paul knows all this. How, how did he maintain his courage? So he responds once again with the truth. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. That's it. I've been gone for years. I brought money for the poor. I participated in normal Jewish religious observance in the normal way, and I did it correctly, legally. It's got to have been very hard to keep his message so simple and to the point. <laughs> I mean, we often want to fluff up our answers with lots of unnecessary information. Maybe that's just me, but... Yeah. Point being, perhaps we should just keep to the point. Tertullius claimed that by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything uh, about everything of which we accuse him. Examine him. How? Like the soldiers were going to do with flogging? Fortunately, Felix follows protocol and gives Paul a chance to defend himself against these charges. And we should be happy there is protocol. I know that it's irritating sometimes to have to go through all the hassles that our governments put us through. But we need to be aware that God uses those protocols for his work. And I know sometimes it feels like we're doing nothing but playing the game their way. But if we trust God, maybe we should trust that he can use even government red tape protocols in his service. Felix lets Paul defend himself and he points out that he was not the problem but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make any accusations should they have anything against me. I've noticed the same sort of thing. When people claim science disproves the Bible, the, answer, the accusers themselves are almost never present. That is to say the experts in any given field almost never defend the claim proof from their field. It's always almost always someone from some other discipline. So if someone tells you that other people who are authorities say thus and so, ask them who those people are. Scientists have proved, really? Who? Give me a name. <laughs> Very few people will stake their professional reputation on these claims. Very few. And what is the actual fact that's supposed to disprove the Bible? Lots of times it really makes no difference. Sure, that could be true the way you understand the world. It could also be true if God created everything like the Bible says. Either one would work. Sometimes we need to make people actually stand up for what they claim is the truth. Of course, you'll probably face what Paul did. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. There are always people willing to jump on the anti-Christian bandwagon. 
So let's make them stand up for what they say, like Paul did. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Make people stick their necks out. I had a guy tell me Christians, all Christians are warmongers. I said, they are. Do you think I'm a warmonger? (laughs) And make them answer the question. Just wait. Well, they hem-haw around. It was actually kind of fun, I have to admit. (laughs) They need to say that their claims are serious. If they're right, then we ought to give up Christianity. If they're wrong, maybe they ought to embrace Christianity. And Paul is not saying that he did wrong in crying out about the resurrection. He's saying that the only thing they, they might say he did wrong was to claim that resurrection was real. And only the Sadducees would have found this claim wrong. Now, Paul knows full well that the Sadducees will not bring up the resurrection. That's the one thing they don't want to discuss. Because most people believe that there has to be some kind of afterlife. The scriptures say that God has placed eternity into the heart of man. And it takes a lot of education to drive it out. The Sadducees had taken scrupulous care to ensure that they had just such an education. (laughs) But they knew most everyone, maybe even Felix, disagreed with them. So why bring it up if it wasn't going to be a part of the trial? Because once again, it's the central point of Christianity. And Paul always keeps a full court press towards the resurrection. Now, listen to what happened to Paul just five days earlier. How in the world did he maintain courage to make this defense? When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though they were going to determine his case more as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Those who actually understand Christianity and yet oppose it are willing to get vicious, even violent. There aren't many of them, but enough to put some scare into us. If we keep giving the message of God's love to the world, we will eventually face people like this. Assassins. These were called the Sakari. How did Paul maintain courage knowing there were men who hated him so greatly that they vowed to kill him? Especially when you consider how all this started. The tribune had arrested Paul during the riot on the temple grounds. He can't figure out what all the hubbub is about. So the next day, he calls the Jewish council together, hoping they'll clear up the problem, or at least give him enough information that he can figure out what to do. So our opening scene has Paul standing before the council the day after he was beaten by the crowd as they sought to kill him. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. The 
first half of this exchange brings up a whole host of interesting issues. <laughs> now, we've already discussed Paul's conscience and how ours might not try to carry anything difficult. This Ananias did indeed ignore Scripture with his order. Curiously, a predecessor of his was involved in the same error a few decades earlier when he had said these things. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Obviously, this officer, this office had been held for a long time by corrupt, hypocritical men. But we see the same thing. People willing to abandon the very principles they claim to support if it seems to be to their advantage. Often these people are completely contradictory in their statements. For instance, the same Supreme Court, the same judges that said a person could not be prosecuted for destroying a preborn human allowed the prosecution of a person who only interfered with a preborn bald eagle. He took an egg out of the nest. Whatever you think on these issues, you have to admit that this is inconsistent. But that's what hypocrisy is all about. Inconsistency in character and in behavior and speech. This particular high priest was well known for his hypocrisy. Even the Jewish historian Josephus notes his terrifically ill conduct including the illegal and immoral murder of James. That's where we find that information. So when Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, was it a prophecy or inevitable truth? <laughs> God did strike him. I promised to tell you about the Sakari, the assassins. Many of these guys used a, used to hide a smaller knife, a sika, so they got their name, under their cloaks, and then they'd come behind a Roman sympathizer at some big public gathering, stab him in the back, and then escape in the crowd before anyone could identify them. I mean, nice guys. And obviously willing to do whatever it took to kill those they thought opposed their Jewish beliefs. Uh, these are the guys that took an oath to kill Paul. Uh, they were desperate criminals and would achieve their goal if it was physically possible. So what does all this have to do with the high priest Ananias? According to other historical documents, within a few years of these events, the Sakari got to Ananias and killed him. And he was indeed terribly corrupt and was undoubtedly a Roman sympathizer. So did Paul state that God would strike him as a prophetic statement? Or was it maybe more what we've talked about before? Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed, the future of the wicked Shall we cut off? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Take your pick. Either one will work. Well, I want to look at the root of the conflict as we close here. Paul's being threatened by a ruthless man who is known to murder those who stand in his way. But he has a message about which we already heard. So let's listen to the message that was so abominable to the high priest and his Sadducee friends. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. A resurrection. Paul never strays far from that message. But the other Pharisees, did those Pharisees really believe? Well, they believed in resurrection as a theory, something that might eventually happen. But Paul believed in resurrection as an already accomplished fact. Jesus had already risen from the dead, and one day all who die trusting in him will also rise from the grave. But they didn't enter into a productive discussion of the resurrection. <laughs> they blew a gasket, both sides of the argument. So was Paul wrong to present it in this way? No, it's our responsibility to tell the truth. It's up to those who hear the message to accept it or reject it. The Sadducees rejected the idea. Those other Pharisees rejected the truth of Christ's resurrection. And they all got so violent that an experienced Roman soldier thought that they might tear Paul apart. Sometimes people who are not Christians are drawn towards Christ because they see the violence of those that hate us. I mean, that's great. But it doesn't make it any easier to be hated, <laughs> nor any safer. So how did Paul maintain the courage to continue to bring the message of the resurrection to these difficult Jews two more times after this. In the very next verse, Luke gives us the answer. Do you remember what the Pharisees said to the Sadducees? What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? They thought it could happen. Maybe even did happen. And, in a way, they were right. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also. In Rome. Jesus let Paul know he was going to get him to Rome. So Paul knew that nobody was going to kill him. Well, at least until he testified in Rome. <laughs> Think about it. What was the result of Paul's testifying? Mm, they tried to beat him to death. They tried to ambush and kill him. They were so violent that they might have torn him apart. Paul needed Jesus to tell him, take courage. Take courage. Take heart. Listen to these quotes by and about Jesus from the New Testament. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Remember the woman who touched Jesus' garment and was immediately healed? Both Matthew and Luke record the event. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly... The woman was made well. Matthew and Mark record another event in the life of Jesus. It's when the disciples were fighting the wind, trying to get their boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus walked on the water out to them. But when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said, spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then there's blind Bartimaeus, who cried out for help from Jesus. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. 
and the very last night Jesus spent with the disciples on this earth. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. Take heart. The words are always spoken by Jesus or about him. These are the only times the New Testament records these words, except for one more. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take heart. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It's the same Greek words. Take heart. Take courage. It's the same. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. How do we have courage when they attack us? Especially when, in the case of Paul, he was one of them. He was a Pharisee who beat believers. But now he can hear the words, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, your faith has made you well. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, get up, he is calling you. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart. You must testify also in Rome. How do we deal with those who hate us simply because we are followers of Christ? Where do we get the courage? I think we take heart knowing our sins are forgiven. We take heart because the faith of God has given, the faith that God has given us has made us spiritually well. We know Jesus is near because we hear his voice. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. We can take heart and get up because he is calling us. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. We take heart because we must testify of Jesus and the resurrection to eternal life that he made possible. Father, thank you for giving us courage. Thank you for making it possible for us to take heart. We know that you will bring us through. This world, well, we've got to get off it somehow. <laughs> we've got to get into the new creation. And it might be that you send your son for us before that time when we die. It might be that we go through death. Either way, we know that we can trust you because you raised your son from the dead as the first of the second-born people, the first of those who were resurrected so that we could know that you're going to bring us safely through. Help us, Father, to bring that message that the resurrection really did happen. Somebody did the impossible. They got up from the grave. And he's alive today. We don't know all the details. We don't really understand what all that means. But we do know that Jesus Christ is alive today. And because of that, we can know that we will live even if we die. Thank you, Father. Help us to bring that glorious message to people so that they can take heart and know that Jesus is calling them. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.